Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. In Anthony, award-winning writer from Southeastern Virginia, I am so pleased to welcome back my friend, Sean, AKA S.A. Cosby, author of My Darkest Prayer and Brotherhood of the Blade. Last year, Sean burst onto the scene with his multiple award-winning breakthrough hit, Blacktop Wasteland, which drew raves from Stephen King and Harlan Coben, among many others. This summer, he released his acclaimed best-selling follow-up, Razorblade Tears, which was one of the books selected as a potential Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, Summer Read. Sean, congratulations on all of your success so far with these books. I can't wait to see what's next. And thank you so much for coming back to chat. How are you doing and how's everything going this summer so far? Everything is crazy. Thank you so much for having me back. I think I... I feel Anytime. like I rambled on when we were talking. I feel like I rambled on <laughs> incessantly when we were talking the last time about Neon Noir because I love it so much. I me listened too. to the podcast later. I listened to the podcast later. And I was like, I, it sounds like the ramblings of a madman. But um, thank <laughs> Not you. Not at all. <laughs> but thank you for having me back. Uh, this summer has been in, in remarkable. Uh, Raised Blade Tears, uh, you know, it, it hit New York Times bestseller list. So I'm, I'm done. Thank you. Guys, thanks for coming. Um, <laughs> I, this, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where you go from there. But uh, I, I, you know, more pertinent to our conversation, uh, it's uh, been optioned for a film with uh, yes. Paramount Players and Jerry Bruckheimer, and uh, and so uh, it's it's uh, an incredible feeling as a writer, but also just as a film fan. I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, I, I, I can't wait to see what they do with it. I just want to go to the movie. Like, I, I don't I even care that I wrote it. I just want to, like, go and see it on a screen. Oh, know, that's incredible. Uh, hopefully, you know, that'll happen. So just as a cinephile, it's uh, amazing to me that someone has taken an interest in my work. And, and, and as, you know, same thing with Latch Out Wasteland. But uh, anyway, I'm so happy to be here again. Thank you for having me. Of course, anytime. And that was perfect because I was actually going to ask you about that because I know both Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland are in various stages of potential film adaptations, which is awesome. And you've been kind enough to let me in on some of the details behind the scenes, but things change really quickly. It is Hollywood. So I don't know how much is public or how much is still the same. So what do you know? What is going on with all of that? You said Bruckheimer. <laughs> so, that's incredible. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was that was insane. So with wow. Blacktop Wasteland, they have a a screenplay has been written. Uh, it was uh, written by the uh, Oscar nominated co writer of Mudbound, Virgil Williams. Oh uh, who's wow! A remarkable, remarkable screenwriter. Yeah, yes. he wrote the screenplay for it, which is interesting because it's interesting seeing someone else interpret your words. And, you know, and, and there were some things. I don't want to go into detail. I can't go into some detail, but there were some things oh, they, sure. they took out. There were some things they took out that I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I don't care. And then other things they took out, like, oh, man, like, <laughs> that was a really cool scene. But the overall uh, 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 production or the overall product, the screenplay is remarkable. It's incredible. And it's oh, really wow. interesting when someone when someone else gets the themes that you were going for. And are able to expound upon them, you know, and and so I'm very anxious to see what uh what what happens with that. And with the Raceway Tears, 
Um, and I'm so sorry. I keep forgetting this man's name. The screenwriter uh, of the movie Charm City Kings is writing the screenplay for Razorblade Tears. And I don't know why I cannot remember his name. I'm so sorry. I'm actually going to look it up because oh, it's sure bugging me. Yeah. Um, but uh, he that was is, a really uh, good in the process of City Kings. Yeah. Oh, man. Yes. And I love that movie. And it's, it's really good. Uh, and I'm just again, I'm amazed that, uh, you know, someone is Sherman Payne words and Sherman Payne. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I apologize to Sherman. Uh, but uh, I think it's interesting for me, you know, personally, as an African-American man, that two African-American screenwriters are the ones interpreting my work. And, and, That's so and cool. not to say that and, and not to say that, uh, you know, a, a, a white person or a white man or woman couldn't interpret it. I'm not saying that, but it is for me, it's just an incredibly uh, emotional sign of how things have progressed that uh, uh, these both award-winning and award-nominated screenwriters are taking on my work and doing such a wonderful job at it. Um, you know, Blacktop Wasteland, uh, I think the screenplay is now being shopped around to directors to see who's interested. Um, with Razorblade Tears, there's so much happening, I can't keep up. It's moving really fast. And I think oh, wow. that's because, you know, Mr. Bruckheimer is behind it. I got to have a Zoom meeting with him which was insane. Was it intimidating was or was he super he, like excessive? No, he was super, he was super nice, but it was like, you know, my background is all these books that I've read that I've got thrown haphazardly on a poor bookshelf that is under incredible strain. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then the other people in the meeting, their background was their, you know, their den or kitchen. His <laughs> background was this huge concave wind picture window which uh, shone out onto Malibu. And it was just, you know, incredible. And he was super nice. He didn't talk a lot. He just, okay. at one point, he just, he just kind of asked, he's like, you know, what do we need to do to be in business together? And it was oh, wow. such a Hollywood, such a really nice thing, but also such a Hollywood thing yeah. to say. And I, <laughs> But he was super cool and super nice, really nicer than I, I imagined he would be. Yeah. And he had read your stories. He you had read know. the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, he had, you know, you know, you think super duper Hollywood producer who made Top Gun, you know, mm -hmm. what he's want to talk to a little peon like me for. But he was in, Aww. you know, he was really, really into the book. He had read the book. Uh, he And I knew he had read it because he mentioned things that you couldn't just get if you skimmed through it. And so gotcha. that was remarkable for me. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what they do with it. Um, you know, people always ask me, like, what's your fantasy cast? What's your fantasy cast? Yeah, when we I was talked about that. It, yes. I envisioned <laughs> Yeah, I envision Delroy Lindo and Sam Elliott, and I think both of them are a little maybe long in the tooth now. Mm -hmm. um, but somebody mentioned uh, two people online the other day, and it really was like, wow. I mean, if 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 the, if the Mr. Bruckheimer is listening, let's maybe go see if we can. <laughs> somebody mentioned Idris Elba, Idris Ooh. Elba, and and Matthew McConaughey, and it's like, wow, that would that be, would be I, 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 I great. Can see that. As soon as they said it, I could see it in my head. So, yeah, so both of those things are moving full speed ahead. And then also, I just found out this week that there are some folks who are interested in my uh, my first crime novel, uh, My Darkest Prayer. So there's an interest in that. I can't say any too much about that, but there's some interest sure. in that as a streaming series. As a streaming series, sort of like a uh, Southern Fried Mayor of Easttown, because uh, it's a murder mystery. Gotcha. Um, and so, uh, that would be so some cool, real, strong. <laughs> Yeah, so so a lot of stuff is happening behind the scenes. I just finished. I turned in two secret projects on deadline. Uh, I saw and that. I was writing them yes. both at the same time. So I was incredibly frazzled. I tweeted last night at like 2.30 in the morning when I pressed send 
on both of them. I was like, I felt like Sally escaping from the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was like laughing and crying <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> um, I'm done. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, those that's what's going on. Uh, and it's been incredible. And I, now that I've done those projects, I'm going to take a two-week break where I'm not writing anything. I don't even want to write my name. <laughs> yeah, you need a mental break. That's so much work. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to catch up on some movies that I've been wanting to see. And, uh, so Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I love, well, you know, obviously I'm here. I love films, but there's been some really good movies come out recently that I haven't had a chance to watch because I've been writing. I go into a zone when I write, so mm-hmm. I don't watch movies. I don't read any books. I just kind of write. So now it's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to crank up the Victrola and my Netflix is going to be humming for the next All couple right. of days. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me know if you watch anything like incredible that you think I would like. Because uh, very will. good taste, and we kind of have similar tastes. So, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Well, you talked a little bit about Razor Blade Tears the last time you were on. And while I encourage everyone to check out that episode of Neon Noir because it was so much fun to record, for now, let's help some new listeners, maybe some new readers out. So, what can you tell us about Razor Blade Tears? So Razor Blade Tears is a story of two fathers, one black, one white, both ex-cons, uh, mm-hmm. gentlemen who are, are, are men of a certain age, a little bit older and, and a, at, a, at a different place in their lives. And unfortunately, as the book begins, their their sons, their gay sons who were married are murdered in what mm-hmm. appears to be a hate crime, a random hate crime. Um, and both these fathers are frustrated with the police investigation that seems to have stalled out. And so they decide to investigate themselves. And what it begins with an investigation begin becomes a uh, a mission of revenge, but also uh, a mission of redemption because neither of these fathers were accepting of their sons and their son's sexuality, and um, mm. they both regret all the years they lost um, not being in their son's lives. And so it's yeah. a story about revenge and grief, but also uh, a story about redemption. And ultimately, the idea that uh, that you know love is love, and um, that's really all that matters. And so. Uh, but it's also incredibly uh, action-packed and violent. And it was inspired by, uh, you know, movies like Rolling Thunder and uh, okay. William Devane. And I, and I think the first appearance of Tommy Lee Jones, I should save that for the cinephile game, but I think it's the first on-screen appearance of Tommy Lee Jones, Rolling Thunder. If you haven't okay. seen it, it's a great, great grindhouse movie from 77 or 78. Okay. Um, and so it was, was kind of inspired by movies like that, but also the Defiant Ones. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and it has that, I think it has that uh, sort of gator, white lightning feel uh, yeah. to it. Uh, and I was really trying to evoke that uh, that atmosphere because I loved those movies growing up. I used to watch them over and over again with my grandpa. Uh, yeah, and so uh, I love that. So, yeah. So anybody that reads the book, I hope you get, you know, there's a lot of emotional scenes, a lot of gravitas, but there's also a lot of violence. People can mm. be killed with, you know, yard, yard tools and gardening tools in interesting ways uh, but uh, <laughs> i'm very proud of the book and I, i'm i'm incredibly uh i'm incredibly grateful the the way people have received it so i am so excited to read it i've been doing so much research for this podcast because i was like recording four episodes this week but i have it right here i did the book plate thing so i could get your um, signatures i have the shelf of like everyone's autograph and so i was very excited to add a sean to my shelf so I can't wait to dive in. Uh, 
And yeah, so I'm very excited about that. And thanks for giving me a little bit of a clue that maybe you're going to play uh, Rolling Thunder the next time we play the Cinephile game. So I'll have to go ahead and watch that. So I'm prepared. No, yeah. just kidding. But obviously you are quite a big film buff. And I always enjoy hearing you share how much you've been inspired by movies and your writing. In the past, we did cast people as characters in your books. And just the other night, you were mentioning Heat's Neil McCauley, inspiring Bug from Blacktop Wasteland. And one of the many films that you and I have in common is The Godfather, which everyone and their cousin by now knows is my favorite movie and series of all time. I remember last winter when I was doing my annual holiday rewatch, which is a family tradition, you mentioned that you were thinking of writing an essay about the Michael Corleone character and what Al Pacino brings to it. And I immediately told you to go for it. Needless to say, I was super excited when you suggested expanding this into a podcast episode on three of Al Pacino's most iconic 1970s roles. We'll go into the movies one by one in a minute. But before we do that, what do you think it is about Al Pacino as an actor that makes him so thrilling to watch? I think it's his incredible fearlessness. Yes. You know, and a lot of actors are fearless. A lot of actors go for, you know, we, you know, but I think there's a line between fearlessness and, and self-parody. I think there's a line between fearlessness and 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 disingenuousness. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's actors. Uh, I remember watching a movie uh, years ago uh, called The Boost, and it was about cocaine addiction and, and star James Woods. And uh, okay. there was a scene where uh, James Woods is, is going into a full-on drug-induced uh, seizure on the floor of a bathroom. Oh and there God. was something about it that, that felt forced. I, mm. I, I, he, it's something about it took me out of the mo- movie because it's like now you're acting. I yeah. now I know you're acting, you know, and and it's different than say um, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, uh, you know Quaalude ride home. Oh, in Wolf of Wall Street. Wall Street. <laughs> uh, where it, yeah, where it doesn't feel like acting, and I think there's a fine line there. And Pacino, you know, he does that with every role. He goes up right mm. up to the line. He goes. He takes chances. He makes choices with his characters. Um, I noticed that the other night in my 75th rewatch of The Godfather yeah. that, like, for instance, and I'm just going to mention that we'll talk about the, the movie more in detail, but just talking about Pacino and his choices as an actor. When you watch The Godfather, in the first scenes, when you first see Mike, when he, he first comes home, he sits up straight. He has great yep. posture. He has ramrod straight posture. He looks everybody in the eye. He's very, you know, and you get the feeling that he's, you know, a little bit overcome. He's a little bit arrogant because he knows mm-hmm. he's smart. He knows he's not a part of the family business, so to speak. Yeah. And then as things happen in the movie, and I I can't believe I'm going to say spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen The Godfather, but <laughs> as things happen, and he, end up, he eventually becomes the head of the family. He does this really great subtle thing where he makes Michael uh, slump. He makes Michael kind yes, of lean the weight to the side. of the world is on he him. Stops, yeah, exactly. He's the, and he stops looking people in the eye. And mm-hmm. He looks off at everybody. He looks off to the right or the left. He never looks people in the eye anymore. Yep. Uh, even at the end when he's when he's lying, you know, he lies to Kate at the end. You know, you know, don't ask me about my don't ask me about my business, Kate. He but even at the end when he lies to her, he's not really looking her in the eye. He's looking no. over her shoulder, and that's yeah. such a subtle thing that nobody. I know he didn't think anybody would notice it, 
but it's such a great thing. And that's what separates him and Pacino and, you know, uh, some modern actors and, and uh, from the rest of the pack. You know, that's what separates people like him and, and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and, and yes. Denzel Washington from everyone else. You know, yeah, not to Denzel's most recent movie, but it's, it's the little <laughs> things, and it's it's and it's the choices that he makes, and that's that's what drives me as a fan of his. I, I love love revisiting his old work. I love seeing what he does. You know, he, you know, I think he's made some uh, some financial decisions with recent yes. roles, and he'll admit that that yeah. doesn't take. Yeah, but that doesn't take anything away from the roles that he's done. No. That are you know, there's some minute in film history. You know. That yeah. they're they're just the greatest performances in film history. Yeah, there's acting with a capital A, and then there's acting, and he really just lives the role, and I love that. It was kind of interesting growing up um, in the '90s or like as a teen and seeing those movies. Like I saw *Son of a Woman* and then um, *Devil's Advocate*, and so that was my earliest experience with Al Pacino and then it was when I finally looked back you know and he's larger than life and he's screaming a lot um then when you look back at the 70s this became my favorite era of Al Pacino like kind of the wild the soulful the more introspective um era I find it really exciting because it was so different than some of the I mean some of the 90s work is incredible but it was cool to look back mm-hmm. and see where that all started and um, his willingness to really play things smaller and more intimately and seem like somebody you would meet but going through just you know either the worst day of their life or slash the best day of their life and dog day afternoon or whatever mm-hmm. uh, he was going through in these movies yeah yeah, I, I feel like you know, uh, like you talk about *Son of a Woman*. That's the one he won an Oscar for, which is a, mm-hmm. a shame because he won. He should have won an Oscar for so many more. And that's, I know. But even that, even that becomes, even that has moments, and everybody knows the the hoo ha moment. Yeah, the wow, you know, I'm going I love, I love Bill Hader's in person. I love Bill Hader impersonating '90s Al Pacino in the SNL sketch. Yeah, it is ridiculously hilarious. But the scenes in Son of the scene at the dinner table in Son of a Woman is incredibly uncomfortable, but in a way that yeah. you can't look away from. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I feel like I'm, and that's the best acting. I feel like I'm eavesdropping on somebody's conversation. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and you know, he won the Oscar, and I'm glad for him that he won the Oscar. But you know, you see it in Son of a Woman the hints of the Al Pacino '70s and '80s, where he, like you yes. said, he was making really interesting choices and really acting on a. He was acting on on a, on a small stage. What I mean, like that, that is by that is that he was acting with the viewer in mind. You know, he made it mm-hmm. very intimate. Yeah, in roles. Yeah, you and, see his uh, roots and in just the theater. Know, yep. Mm-hmm, exactly. Exactly. And uh, you know, uh, like you know, it, it, for me, I love The Godfather. Uh, you know, I, I can watch all three, but my favorite are one and two. And uh, as a as someone who you know, I have a brother. Uh, you know, when he you know he kisses Fredo. And then the second Oof. Godfather, you know, yep. I knew it was you. You broke my heart. And it's like, you yeah. know, it, it's been something that's endlessly parodied. And but yeah. when you watch it for real, when you watch the actual you. performance, it is, it, it is, it's soul crushing because you know yep. what's gonna happen. It is you know what uh, has to happen. I know. He says he pinpoints um the scene in Godfather too. And it isn't, you know, I think everybody would immediately assume it's that one or the scene with um John Cazal, where, you know, I, you're my kid brother. And I, you know, not like people say, I was you know, smart. 
Yes. Oh my gosh. That's so devastating. I can do stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But the scene that Pacino said um, took the most out of him. He actually had to go get checked into a hospital for exhaustion the next day is the Tarzan scene in um, Godfather where you hear the line, you know, Johnny Ola took me here. And then you just Mm -hmm. see it play out on Pacino's face when he realizes he was betrayed. And uh, he said, um, that's like the the one moment he's the proudest of in the series, I thought. And that was interesting. Wow. It wasn't a big wow. dialogue moment uh, that he says. It was just, you can see what's going on just by watching him. I thought that really said a lot about Pacino. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this about The Godfather. Uh, one more thing before we keep move on. My favorite scene, other than the, the, the brother, the, the, the kiss of death scene, is at the funeral at, at Vito's funeral, and oh you know, he, when he realizes when he realizes it's Tessio, and and you know you see the difference between Tom Hagen, you know, played by brilliantly by Robert Duvall, and Michael Corleone. Tom is is with the family, but he's never really in the family yeah. because he he makes the he he makes the comment. He's like, oh, I thought it would have been uh, you know Clemenza. Yeah. He's in uh, Tess. It's nope. a smart move. Yeah. It's a smart play. Barzini. Tessio yep. was always smarter. Yeah. Yeah, and he yeah, and and he's sitting there and he's he's right in front of his father's coffin. Yeah. And he still is still smarter than everybody. And he's still yeah. planning and still working and still making making moves. And it, to me, it's it's when he fully gives himself over to being quote unquote the godfather. You know, the yeah. Michael Corleone who wanted to go to college, the Michael Corleone who was a war hero. That that Michael Corleone is dead. You know, he's as dead as Vito. And now yeah. this is the new Michael Corleone. Very true. And it's, oh. he doesn't he doesn't move. And he does it so quietly. You know, it's it's no histrionics. It's just this is the path I've chosen. This is the world that I've embraced, and it's it's devastating. Makes me it makes me uh, it gives me sh- chills every time I watch it. Yeah, the wheels are turning. Well, I should probably dive in then. Today, we are going in chronological order, tackling 1972's The Godfather, and most likely, as we already have, addressing the 74 and 1990 sequels at the same time, because how can you not? Then after that, we're (laughs) going to take a look at the two pictures that Al Pacino made with director Sidney Lumet which were based on true New York stories. The first being Serpico from 73. The second is Dog Day Afternoon, which was made two years later. It will be hard not to include spoilers when talking about these three landmark American movies, as we already have. So if you haven't seen the films, by all means, press pause, do that because these are masterpieces, then come back or else proceed with caution. But kicking things off, yes, we have Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece of power and corruption in America. And in my eyes, a parable of America, The Godfather from 1972, based upon Mario Puzo's uh, best-selling, admittedly trashy novel, which was adapted by Coppola and Puzo for the screen. Opening in 1945 and spanning 10 years, the film follows the Corleone family, the patriarch and Italian mafia head Vito, played by Marlon Brando and his children, all first-generation Italian-Americans looking for freedom, happiness, and their own piece of the American dream, played by James Caan, John Cazal, Talia Shire, and you also have um, Robert Duvall as a surrogate son, and of course, 
another relative newcomer, Al Pacino, as the World War II hero, Michael, who initially doesn't want any part of his father's life and empire, but gets sucked right in. As Michael Newsweek said that Al Pacino gives what is arguably cinema's greatest portrait ever of the hardening of a heart. And taken together in LA Weekly, John Powers surmised that the first two Godfather pictures come closer to being the great epic of 20th century America, or at least American manhood, than any other works of art I can name. And I wholeheartedly agree. A smash success, garnering Oscars for Best Picture, actor Marilyn Brando, talk about category fraud right there, adapted screenplay <laughs> and nominations for Best Director in multiple other categories, including James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino for Best Supporting Actor. Let's talk more about The Godfather. Well, I think you said, said it all there. It's, it's, the, it's the biblical parable of American success. It's American yeah. Manifest Destiny made, made real. It's, it's, the, you know, the, the, it's the film version of Behind Every Great Empire is a Great Crime. And it's you know done in a way that's operatic. It's Greek tragedy. It's you know yes. it's 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 you know it's it's you know it's 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 mythos. It's mythology made mm-hmm. you know flesh made film. You know it's um, you know it's it's a, it's it's an epic of biblical proportions on celluloid. And mm-hmm. Al Pacino is arguably the heart of this story. And like I said earlier, those little choices he makes, but also the big choices he makes. He's, you know, I, I love that line where somebody said it's the story of a hardening of a heart, and it really yeah. is. You know, Michael is Michael is, you know, for lack of a better word, the golden child of this mm-hmm. family. And even though his father is frustrated with him, he's also proud of him because Michael goes his own way. You know, he's he's the antithesis of Sonny. Sonny is. For all intents and purposes, the stereotypical gangster. He's hot, yep. he's brash, he's violent. Um, poor Fredo, you know, he's the the, the middle child sheep <laughs> in this family and, and mm-hmm. the middle child. Yeah, but Michael's the golden, the golden son. And and uh, you know, there's so many great scenes and so many great notes to his performance. Uh I've spoken about a couple of them before, but another one that always touches me, um, and I I know I, I probably have personal reasons for this because I had a very I have a very complicated relationship with my dad. But the mm-hmm. scene in the uh in in the in the garden where Vito is telling Michael, you know, Vito knows he doesn't have long to live. And so he's telling Michael, you know, the one that comes to you after the funeral to make peace, that's the that's your traitor, that's the betrayer. And yeah. um, you know, and and you know, and and I agree with you about category four. There's no way Marlon Brando should have been. <laughs> I know. But, I mean he's um, very good, but, but he, it's like but he, no. <laughs> But he gives this great speech there, you know, how he told Michael he always wanted better for you, you know, Senator Corleone, President Corleone. And, and um, you know, I wanted, you know, I, I, and I don't apologize for the choices I've made. And, yeah. um, you know, he, he says all that. And then Michael very much as a son, not as a fellow gangster, you know, mm-hmm. pats him on the arm, pulls him in close and like, we'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. It yeah. chokes me up. It chokes me up just talking about it. It does. Yeah. It's such... <laughs> It's such, again, such, you know, he's the opposite of Brando's bluster, you know, mm-hmm. with the really thick kind of bad accent. Um, but, um, <laughs> yes. but he's the opposite of that. He's calm and collected, but he loves his father. You know, you yeah. know that's his daddy. And and you see all that in just very, again, you, you, you nailed it on the head. It's his roots in the theater. 
he's 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 acting in a very personal, intimate way. He's acting for one person in the audience, and he just makes like I said, such he had such great instincts back then for mm-hmm. such a newcomer to to yeah. Uh, he had such great instincts, and you can see such an advance in his. And I don't know whether this is cop uh, Francis Ford pulling it out of him. Or was it a? I, I I tend to think it's an amalgamation. I think it's a part. Oh yeah, the two of them. Because to me, you can see he's way he's way better by leaps and bounds in The Godfather than he is in Panic in Needle Park. In my opinion, mm-hmm. in my opinion, he's he's improved so much between the two films. Yeah, and um, you know that's why he that's you know that's why Michael Corleone is such an indelible character in American pop culture history because of the Al Pacino's performance because like you said he goes from being this war hero this this guy who's like i don't want anything to do with my family to like i have to take this on and i think this is just my personal interpretation i think early on in the film he realizes that sonny is not good at this you know no not at all is very hard (laughs) yeah the temper the the conversation yeah the braggadocio the conversation yeah after he gets beat up by uh captain powder or not powder Captain, whatever his name is, yeah, Sterling uh, Hayden, and, and yep. so um, Sterling Hayden has a great jerk. I know. Um, having get <laughs> smacked around by Sterling Hayden, yeah, and and Sonny, he, Michael comes up with the idea of you know he's dirty yeah. cop, he's a dirty cop. Let's take him out. And Sonny's like, oh, you just want to do it because he smacked you around. Mm-hmm. And Michael, you know, he gives the great line, you know, it's business, it's not personal. Yeah, and a lot of people see that scene and they think he's lying. Mm-hmm. I always saw that scene like, no, he means that. He's able to separate the personal of getting slapped in the face from the actual point that this is business and we can do this. You know, who says he's off limits? He's a dirty cop. We can make it work. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, I always thought that's Michael as a brother looking at his brother, Sonny. Like, I love you, but you you don't have the tools for this. I got to do this because if, if I leave it to you, there will be no Corleone empire. You know, it's not sad, yeah, but it's unsaid in his in, in in the performance. In the performance, I just you know I love it. It's just and it, it's, it's such an incredible, uh, mal- uh, such an incredible uh, 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 you know tapestry of of different instinctual choices that are never wrong. It's not a false note in that performance at all. It's a no. tragedy he didn't win Best Actor. It is it one really of the is. great. Tra- it's, yes, he's it's right up. It's right up there. It's right up there with Shakespeare and love beating Saving Private Ryan for best picture. It's the worst tragedy. (laughs) I think I was team Thin Red Line that year, but yeah, exactly. There were other things besides Shakespeare and love. But um, when you talk about Pacino and that scene, I think it might be a combination of the two. He's able, like Sonny is all emotion. And, um, you know, Michael is a little bit emotion, a little bit of business. So he's definitely better at that for sure it's interesting i think um he's admitted that michael was a little bit francis uh which is interesting because diane keaton says Kay is a little bit of eleanor coppola uh who is francis's wife at the time so i think they were playing a little bit of that pacino for you know he's synonymous with the actor studio but he's method up to a point. He doesn't really go for the sense memory thing or drawing on his own life. But you can't help but when you watch this, think about the fact that this is a guy whose dad like ran out on him when he was two years old. He only saw him every few years. So he's got dad issues. 
uh, the godfather is an epic movie for people with dad issues uh my friend Blake <laughs> yes, howard yes. uh we kind of joke about we love all these movies with these daddy issues but like heat <laughs> and all the michael manns and all the coppolas and all these movies kind of have the same thing going on but yeah this is a film um i think it gets richer the more you see it uh you see the but you sense that Vito loves Michael, but then when you watch Godfather 2 and you realize just how much he is the one favoring him and holding him at the end, and Michael is the golden child, so it kind of pays off more stuff with like even um, coloring a picture. You see it uh, with, I think it was Sonny's kid in um, Godfather 1. It pays off in the next one. It also kind of makes me think of that line from The Breakfast Club that Ali Sheedy gives, which is when you grow up, your heart dies. Like you don't want to become your parent or you don't want to do that, but it's inevitable. Michael has all these ambitions when he sees Kay, like that's my father, that's my father, that and my family, that's not me inevitably he is going to become that you can just see it happening um and so the godfather is the ultimate epic of you might try but you're going to get caught back up in this web like thought i was out they pulled me back in he says it in three (laughs) but it really goes through the whole series yeah oh yeah and it's definitely like you said it's interesting that it's it's definitely an epic for people that have daddy issues like i said i had a a very complicated i had a complicated relationship with my dad and my mom and dad separately when I was very young yeah. um, and it is and I was very you know very blessed I've been able to repair that relationship we have a great relationship now That's um, great. and uh you know it's 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 interesting you know um you know my dad he told me recently he, he doesn't he doesn't read he doesn't, he's not a great reader but he yeah. has all of the copies of my books they're Aww. on his entertainment center and uh I went there recently because I bought him a recliner I used one of my first big that's the first big thing that. I bought yes. with a book check yeah. And I went there and uh, I got him to recline and I made him sit in it because he was sitting in this old broke down one he had. Yeah. And I made him sit in the recliner and he was like, you know, you don't have to do this for me. You know, he's like, Aww. you know, you had, and he said something very similar to what Vito said. He said, you have your own dreams and I want you to fulfill them. And I said, this oh. is my dream, Pop. You know, and and so when you watch The Godfather, and you see. I get emotional here, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you beautiful. see the relationship between Michael and Vito. It is it is the epic of male it's masculine uh you know mythology you know yeah. it's, it's the masculine identity of the 20th century and mm-hmm. I think you know there is a definitely a, a strain of toxic masculinity especially through early American movies 50s 60s and 70s but I think the 70s started to turn it I think the 70s started to be more introspective Question you know, Z- yep. you know uh, Zoetrope Studios yeah you know yeah. And, and Coppola and and, and Scorsese and uh, you know all those guys you know. Uh, uh, really started to question what is masculinity? What are we doing? You know, why can't we show emotion? Why can't we tell each other yep. we love each other? And so on and so forth. And, you know, Pacino, you know, again, for such a young guy doing such a, uh, you know, one of his first roles. And again, he just brings all that to bear. He brings mm-hmm. all that to bear, you know, and, and you know, um, and also, you know, in, in part two, we see more of it because now he's he's much harder, but you still yes. see glimpses of the old Michael. You, know that you Michael, do. Uh, Little you flashes. Mm-hmm. And it and it's it's you know it, it's interesting again the choices that he made again, which is, which makes me somewhat sad with Godfather Three because I feel like everybody in Godfather Three real well had the mentality that we're making a Godfather movie. I yeah. felt like there was so much pressure from the it historical is. cachet that goes along with it. Yeah, I, 
I don't want to say they were bad choices, but they weren't. They don't ring as true as the choices in one and two. Um, I actually, no, you know, I it's parody. Yeah, it's parody to death. But I don't really have a problem with the, you know, they keep pulling me back in line because in context, no. it's very powerful. So true. It's very powerful. Um, but I think there, there, there were just choices made thematically, plot-wise. You know, mm-hmm. one and two is a very simple plot. And and I think simple is the best because the plot doesn't really matter to me in the Godfather movies. No. What matters to me is, is the relationships. I'm not here for the Byzantine conspiracy yes. crime drama. Yeah. You I know, mean, they I, are I'm kind of hangout f- movies, basically, to quote yeah. my friend Travis. Yes, they are. And um, yeah, there's a Shakespearean overtone, but it doesn't really matter. I agree with you. I'm here for the conversations. I'm here for the relationships. I'm, yep. I'm here for Michael and Sonny talk. And I'm here for, you know, Michael being brutally honest with Tom Hagen. You're not a wartime consigliere, which is something that Sonny says earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it bears fruit. But Sonny says it in a way that hurts Tom's feelings. It's, you know, again, over the top emotional. Michael, very much business. And Tom takes it better from Michael than he does from Sonny. Because honestly, Tom respects Michael more than he respected Sonny. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, and we could talk about, you know, the great acting all through this movie, you know, that Robert Duvall as the outsider always yes, is very good. Um, and but, I, but, you know, I think, you know, Michael, I watch Godfather at least, and I'm embarrassed to say this. I watch Godfather at least once a month. <laughs> I, oh, I masterpiece. Love that movie. <laughs> I love I, at least once or twice a month. It comes on TV. It's on AMC all the time. Yeah. I have uh, the DVD. I have the, uh, I have the DVDs. Um, you know, I, I, I just, as a, I'll say this one, I'll say one last thing and then we can move on. Uh, but as a writer, uh, Francis Ford Coppola took what was essentially a trashy novel of mm-hmm. the 70s. Oh, it is. Or, yeah. Or the 60s. Yeah. And it's, it, I don't want to be disrespectful to Mr. Puzo. It, it's, it is what it is. It's a pulp novel. It, you it know, is. It has, you know, it's interesting. And he elevated it to high art and he did it scene by scene. Mm-hmm. Every scene starts Either it starts negatively and ends positively, or it starts positively and in negative ends negatively. Mm-hmm. It's an, a masterpiece of pacing. I don't think we talk enough about the pacing of The Godfather. It's a no. masterpiece of pacing, and within that pacing is a master, masterful performance by Corley, by my, uh, uh, Al Pacino as Michael changes over the course of the movie, and he changes within that pacing, and he grows and becomes more brutal, more vicious. More, but also at the same time, struggling with that, he really wants to be legitimate. Yep, he really wants to be an actual businessman, and and I think a lot of people. Well, I'm gonna say this now. I sound like an egotistical movie uh, nerd. I wonder how many people realize that his painful desire to be legitimate is based on that conversation he had with his dad in the vegetable garden. Mm-hmm. He wants that so bad. He wants to. He wants to do that for his daddy. And it's so, so powerful. And Pacino makes all the right choices uh, uh, illustrating that. So, so yes. ah, got a little emotional there. I'm going to take a breath. Oh, no, but anyway, you're fine. There's, there's that line <laughs> in uh, You've Got Mail that Nora Ephron writes uh, for Tom Hanks. You know, the Godfather is the I Ching. It is basically, it's it's Shakespearean. It's epic. There, It's a Greek tragedy. You pointed out all of the lessons with masculinity. And what I love about it is there was a lot of questioning in the 70s, a lot of these great actor stereotypes going back 
um, they were inspired by the people that questioned masculinity in the fifties, like Marlon Brando and James Dean and Montgomery Clift. And you've got yeah. that again, you've got very different types of masculinity on display in the Godfather. You have Cazal, you have Khan, you have Duvall, you have uh, Pacino, and they're all carrying it out. And then um, you have the more toxic characters like Carlo. And, um, mm. you know, it, it's really interesting. And I think when it comes to three, it was made 16 years later. And mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. Like you don't have Duvall. And I think you needed Duvall. Like Pacino mm-hmm. at first kind of blamed the problems of three when he would talk about it with, we really should have gotten Duvall back and we didn't mm-hmm. have him. Uh, he didn't want to blame Duvall because there was something with the contract and wanting more money. He's like, mm-hmm. I'm not blaming him, but we needed that character. And then as it mm-hmm. went on, he said, you know, the thing about Michael is we really don't know if we want to see him as a protagonist, like looking for redemption. Like that isn't as interesting. That's not what the audience wants. Uh, That's what he he was thinking that there was a plot or a structural thing. And that maybe we should have known more about Tom or Kay. And I Mm. think absolutely. He said, you know, Kay is one of the most interesting characters. And it's the last time we saw her in two uh, his character, Michael, was slamming the door in her face. And um, then in three, uh, he said, you know, that would have been an interesting confrontation. So he had some issues with where they went with Michael. I don't like to come down too hard on three. They're, I don't hate it as much as other people do. And I don't, it's not a masterpiece. It's not in the same league as one and two. But I've liked it more the more I've watched it. And I do really like the Coda cut. I think it helps the pacing. It's not the pacing of the others, like you were saying, but it does improve it a little. Yeah. I've always thought it would have been a better story if instead of Michael's son wanting to be an opera singer and just having that kind of throwaway line, Mm -hmm. if he wanted to be an opera singer and he was was forced to do what Michael had to do. That would have been interesting. Yeah. And I mean, and, and because they kind of do it with Sonny's son, but Sonny's son, I mean, you know, uh, the great, you know, Andy uh, Garcia. Oh, I always felt like there. he's an amazing actor, but I always felt like you. There's nothing wrong with revisiting, you know, the the, the generation yes. trauma, revisiting the sins of the father upon the son. I would have mm-hmm. loved to have seen again. Now, that. that is the writer in me. I would have loved. I would have loved to seen Michael's son. You know, change some things around. Have a certain mm-hmm. character die that dies, but yeah. have that character die earlier and have it force Michael's son to become a part of the family for revenge and then see Michael struggle to keep him from not doing it. Oh, that would have been interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. the but, trauma is you know, there. And we, I think that, and, yeah. but to your, I was going to say to your point, you definitely yeah. needed Tom Hagen because Tom gives us the Greek chorus. He's yes. the outside, he's the narrator. On the outside looking in. And I would have loved to seen, you know, elder statesman Tom Hagen, no longer a consigliere, maybe gone on and started his own business, but still helping Michael. And I would have loved, oh my God, could you imagine what Duvall had done with a scene where he finally blows up at Michael, finally tells him, you know, you know, <laughs> you were his yes. son, you were his blood son, but I did everything that Vito wanted to be done. I protected I Fredo. What did he you do did. to Fredo? You know, if you could have yeah. seen, oh my God, if you could have seen, I would have loved to see what that scene looked like. But, that you know, would have alas. been more impactful. <laughs> like the big confrontation and confession about Fredo, I think would have been far more interesting if it was him and Tom or him and Tom and yes. Connie all in one scene. Yes. So I love what Talia Shire brings to it too. But yeah. Oh yeah. She's remarkable. Oh, she's remarkable. Yeah. 
But if Tom could have had his, if Tom could have had his moment to be like, you know, all of you, all of you, Sonny, Frank, all of you running around, you know, and and didn't appreciate him for who no, he was. He did. No, I'm the only one not. that loved Vito for who yes. he was, you know, and just and and so anyway, what could have been? Yeah, um, but, <laughs> I know we got to rewrite this. No, I'm just kidding. Guess, yeah. <laughs> but no, we could I'm be not. here. <laughs> all day on the godfather i mean it's so worth it we should have just done a whole series on this no i'm just kidding but we should probably move on or i'll keep sean for the whole weekend <laughs> so uh, next could, step yeah let's oh go for it i was gonna say yeah let's I, uh, let's let's move on because i you you'll yeah we'll run out of, mean, we'll run out of tape if i talk about the godfather me so. too <laughs> same yes well next up we have our first of two true stories brought to the screen by the gifted gritty new york street stylist sydney lumet serpico released in 1973 is a biographical crime drama based upon the book by Peter Moss and Frank Serpico, which chronicled the former New York police officer's fight to at first ignore and then expose the extensive corruption during his 11 years of service within the New York City Police Department. Eventually turning whistleblower and almost losing his life in the process, Serpico's heroic efforts led to the investigation by the Knapp Commission, an intellectual with an artistic sensibility. Although Pacino says he only lasted about five minutes hanging out with real beat cops uh, from the era before he left, Pacino did love spending time with the real Frank Serpico, who when the actor asked him why he did what he did and took such a risk for justice, Serpico said, I don't know, Al. But then he said, if I didn't, how would I listen to music? thus implying he didn't know if he could appreciate something so soulful if he had lost his own. Like, what kind of person would he be? When asked what it's like working with Al Pacino and what he brings to a role, Sidney Lumet had this to say to Vanity Fair. Everything stems from some incredible core inside of him that I wouldn't think of trying to get near because it would be like getting somewhere near the center of the earth what comes out of his core is so uniquely his own it's the only thing he can trust it is quite clear that al is a loner it's a sentiment that comes through a lot james Kahn called al the weirdo who sat in the corner when they first worked together before becoming great friends on the godfather and i think his outsider status only helps him on serpico so how about you what do you think of this one sean Oh man, I first saw Serpico at a uh a second run theater. It used to be a place in uh my home well not my hometown. Um this is another dad story, so bear with me. So Don't my, go dad, for it. My, <laughs> when my dad and mom separated, this. my dad <laughs> my dad and mom uh separated, my dad got the stereotypical 80s bachelor apartment. He gotcha. left our small we lived in a small rural town and he went uh to the to the city, he went to a city, small city uh, called Newport News, Virginia. And uh, he lived there for a while. And his job was he was a fisherman. Uh, and so he would leave off of the docks in Newport News because they have a lot of it's a lot of access to the Chesapeake Bay down there. And uh, uh, for a little while, uh, until him and my mom had an argument and I couldn't go anymore, he would come get me. And mm-hmm. I'd spend like the day with him. I never spent the night in his apartment because uh, I think he was dating a lot. But I yeah. spent the day with him. <laughs> I, I spend my dad. For, it's funny. My dad was a bit of a ladies man. Unfortunately, you can't be a ladies man and be married. But, um, but um, <laughs> uh, he would come and get me, and we would spend a day together. And a lot of I loved movies even back then. So, like ten, yeah. eleven years old, 
I wanted to go see movies. And there was a second run theater near his apartment called the Beachmont Twin. So they would run old movies for a dollar. Uh, so you would see a lot of I saw I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre there and Halloween and stuff like that. Oh wow. That. And this is like in you know, eighty this is like in eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine. Okay. Um so anyway anyway, um uh he usually my dad let me pick the movie. And this was one day he wanted to pick the movie. He's like, I want you to go with me to this movie. I don't know if you'll like it, but it, it you know, I remember it, it was a big deal back in the day. And so we go to see Serpico and I'm like, this is toward the end of us hanging out like this. Cause uh, like I said, him and my mom had already man. He moved away again. But anyway, hmm. um, I was like 13 to 14 and I remember watching it. And two things struck me because uh, I'm, I'm a country kid. I live in, I grew up in a rural area. One thing was, man, I want to go to New York city. Yeah. Those movies. Yeah. I want to Yes, I want to experience that New York. I want to walk those sidewalks. I want to get on the subway. I want to feel the sense of sense of excitement and danger. And the mm-hmm. other thing that struck me was, you know, Frank Ser- Serpico as a character, as a person, but also as a character, is either the bravest person in the world or the craziest person in the world. Yes, because as a yeah. as a young African American kid, I you know I, I'd seen family members, friends have not so great interactions with the cops and that was just local sheriff's deputies you know for me in that movie the nypd is this monolith of Mm -hmm. not evil and that corruption it's just this monolith it's just this immutable uh uh thing it's an axiomatic entity you know it's just it's the nyp f and d yes yeah you can't mess with it (laughs) right and for Frank Serpico in the in the movie. I've also read the book by Peter Moss, but for Frank's the, the character of Frank Serpico, like you said, it, it, he's a great classic character. He's a reluctant hero. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't want to see anything. He doesn't want to be involved. He knows it's wrong, but he just like I just want to do my job, man. I did. But what he comes to realize is doing his job is exposing this exposing this corruption is his job. Yeah. And you know, again, Pacino, he was on such a roll in the seventies, man. Mm-hmm. He. I think it's interesting that people that that uh, that Lament said that he was a loner because you feel that through this performance with Serpico in a way you don't feel it with Michael. Um, no. That you know, here's a guy who's very self-contained, and he brings again this incredibly nuanced, instinctual performance to the role. You know, there's mm-hmm. scenes in Serpico where where Serpico, even before he begins whistleblowing, he's very apart from the other cops. You know, yeah. he, he's in the room, but he's, he's not. You know, and he's his own thing. He's, you know, he's a guy that loves jazz. He's like has artistic bent. He's a sensitive. Yeah, soul. loves also, opera, loves that. every ballet. Yes, but he also feels like a sense of duty, and yeah. and I think again, this goes back to, uh, you know, filmmakers, uh, um, you know, in the seventies, and Lamette is known for his hard, like you said, he's the poet of New York City, um, but he's also uh, examining these these masculine roles. Mm-hmm. You know, why is why is Frank Serpico any less of a man than any of the other other guys that walk a beat? Because he likes music, because he likes art, because he has he's introspective. And it's interesting that Lumet does this really interesting, interesting thing that Pacino really brings to life. That it's this guy that brings mm-hmm. them down. This guy that they don't respect. This yep. guy that they refuse to understand is the one who brings the whole thing down. And I thought that was such a bold statement. You know, in, in 1973 or 19, I'm sorry, 19, uh, yeah, 1973. I think it was such a bold statement back then that you can be this kind of man. You can be sensitive, but also tough. You can be artistic, but also, uh, you know, uh, forthright. And I thought, mm-hmm. I've watched that movie, not as much as I have The Godfather, but a lot. I, I 
should watch it again recently in, in, in anticipation of this. And the journey that Pacino takes us on as Serpico, it's so sad, you know? Yes. He's so alone. And, yeah. and, and this was different between being a, it's different, there's a difference between being a loner and being alone. And yeah. he is a loner, but being a loner is your choice. Being alone is fought, forced upon you, and he, he's forced upon him. And I understand, you know, in real life, why the real Serpico left the country, because you can never go back to that. You can, no. you know, it, it, you can never yeah. go back to that, that place. Yep. Yeah, so, he's, uh, you know. Yeah, an Italian citizen right well, now. I, I, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, sure. about, um did, did you feel, I always felt like, there's a true story, so, you know, you're kind of bound to a certain extent, but I always felt like, man, I always got the feeling that if it was up to Lamette, he would have killed Serpico. Like, it's like, I kind I of feel like that a little bit. Yeah. Because he's a big filmmaker who likes, he doesn't like to, you know, put the message first, but he does work with the theme. Um, like before he goes in, like, why am I making this? What is the theme? And, you know, everything has to be in service of it. Kind of like Pacino says, what draws him to a film is three things. First, it's um, the director, then it's the text, uh, the script, and then the character. And he said he can do a movie if one of them is super strong and the other two are kind of so-so. Like, you know, if one is better than the other, he'll do it. Um, but yeah, I kind of see that, like it opens where he's like clinging to his life. I can kind of see Lumet mm-hmm. sort of wishing they could do that. I feel like this movie, the character is almost better than the film a little bit, um, mm-hmm. because I think the last half gets a little unwieldy as it continues, mm-hmm. but it's such a good movie. I remember the first time I saw it, it was really revolutionary. I grew up, uh, around a lot of cops, like my great uh, grandpa and uncles on both sides of my family, a couple who'd left the force, one to counsel other Vietnam vets because he didn't like the force, one who wound up like basically drinking himself to death because of what he saw in the force. And then like mm-hmm. I babysat cops um, and then a friend of a friend uh, worked for a corrupt department and basically was run mm-hmm. out of there and stories about like you can't ticket these guys and you can ticket, the, you know, and there's like having to play ball. So I remember seeing this at the age where I was starting to be aware of, you know, when you're a kid, you grow up thinking, well, people break the law and the police put them in jail. And then as you get older, Mm -hmm. you see that there's a lot of gray there between that and what's good Mm -hmm. and evil. And there's two sides of the same coin. I think I saw it around the time NYPD blue was such a huge thing. So you were seeing Mm -hmm. um, the good and the bad. And so, yeah, it was really revolutionary when I saw it. There's also a totally different side of Pacino that I hadn't seen before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought I thought the thing that struck me also in in his performance, you know, is you know he does this thing where you know you know Serpico uh, loses everything. He loses yeah. his girl, his his woman, and Lori. He loses his friends. He mm-hmm. loses his job. Um, you know, it takes a strain on him. He, he he acts out. You know, there's a scene where he you know sees a a a, a criminal getting a special treatment. And he flips yep. out on the guy, you know, and it's like, you know, and, and, and we feel every inch of that stress with, yes. with, with Serpico. We, you know, um, and Pacino, he does this thing again, background in theater. He does a lot of face acting where he doesn't yeah. say anything, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he does a lot of stuff where he's looking a certain way. And you can, like you said earlier, you can see the wheels turning in his head and, and he, 
he doesn't have to verbalize stuff. You can mm-hmm. see this is where Serpico realizes, oh, I'm in danger. These guys don't have my back. Or yeah. this is where he realizes, um, I've got to say something. I can't keep going on doing this. You know, mm-hmm. what is this? What I didn't sign up for this. So yeah. many points in that movie where he is uh, just emoting with his face. You know, it's, it's such a visual performance. And and I think that's again brilliant because it's totally different for Michael. It really is. You know, yeah. totally two different roles where Michael is always talking, always talking, very expository character. Serpico doesn't talk a lot. He, mm-hmm. he again, it's a physical role where he's showing, you know, uh, uh, through his mannerisms again, through his yeah, his, what's happening and what's going on in his mind. But it's interesting to say about the opening of it, how it opens. And, you know, uh, you know, again, Lumet taking a chance as a director, which he always did. He was famous yes. as a director, opening with the scene where you don't know whether he's going to make it. And that's where I always thought, like, wow, yeah. I wonder if he really wanted to end with him dying because it's such an arresting opening scene. It is. Um, yeah. And also for me, uh, the thing, like, we'll take a moment to say this, you know, in in The Godfather and in Serpico, not so much in Dog Day Afternoon, but, uh, you know, Al Pacino is so good looking in the 70s. Oh, he's gorgeous. such a handsome Absolutely guy. Absolutely gorgeous. In yeah. the 70s, you know. And 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 in and, and the Godfather, you know, Michael Corleone with the black hair and uh, you know, the uh of uh, the Italian uh Tuscany tan when he comes back, you know, but then also Serpico, this this really, you know, almost hate Ashbury look, the long black yeah, hair. Yeah, he's beard, a total hippie, you know, yes, um, with that hair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But he's just this, you know, incredibly handsome man who you get the feeling it, with Serpico, I don't know, you know, I'm not speaking about the real character, but the character in the film, not the real person, but the character in the film, you get the feeling that he could have just scooted through life, you know, and, and, you know, yep, he didn't have to. Yeah, by his looks choice. and charm, so charming, mm-hmm. like that yeah. party scene. He yeah. is so Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and that's again Pacino oozing that charm, that charisma. Yeah. That I don't know if you can teach that. You know, I mm-hmm. don't know if you can teach that. It's just like with writing. I can teach you how to. I can teach you verb subject agreement. I can teach you, you know, passive versus active voice. Can't teach you to tell a story. No, I, I just you gotta you gotta have it. And with acting, I can teach you. You know, like you said, sense memory. You can do method acting versus. You know, traditional, uh, you can do the, you know, the Strasburg uh, method mm-hmm. versus, you know, just regular, you know, the, theatrical acting. I can't teach you charisma. I, no. I can't teach you mag- magnetism. I know. And what's so and interesting. Pacino has oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. What's oh, so yeah, interesting no, go ahead, go ahead. about um, Pacino, just like Robert De Niro, who's my favorite actor, is they're two incredibly shy people in real life. But there's just something about them, like they're only um, understanding life or, or figuring things out when they're playing somebody else. Then they get to um, explore different sides of themselves. Pacino kind of compared it to therapy. Uh, but yeah, he's very shy. But in this movie, uh, you see that uh, talking about styles of acting and things. Um, we're going to get to Dog Day Afternoon in a minute. But one of the stories that he tells about John Cazal, who's one of my favorite actors, he was in uh, five movies, all five, of course, nominated for Best Picture before he passed away from uh, lung cancer. But one of the lessons that uh, Pacino, who looked at him as an older brother, said that he taught him was it's okay to ask questions and not have answers. And that was a really important part of his acting. I guess they had worked together 
on um, a play, I think it was called like The Indian Wants the Bronx, something like that mm -hmm. uh, in the late 60s. Then we're in Godfather in those movies. And, and uh, it was Pacino's idea to cast him in Dog Day. But Cazal was kind of um, an influence on him. Like, it's okay. Actually asking questions and not having answers, which is so much like real life, um, helps him figure out, find um, what he's thinking. And we, we watch him think in character. And this is a perfect example of that. Yeah. 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 And, and like I said, that's a great, great point. I see that, you know, you mentioned that. I could see Pacino doing that in that performance a lot. You know, he does mm -hmm. so much with his eyes and circle. Yeah. You know, he does so much with his eyes and circle. You know, it's funny. I, I I wanted to ask you this too. As somebody who grew up in the South in a small town, um, I when I finally got to go to New York, I, been, I, I went to New York in my twenties, and I don't remember much of it because it was a lot of drinking. Um, <laughs> and then I went, <laughs> I went on a trip with some friends, and it was just, you know, we were twenty-two, you know. Yeah. Um, but I went recently when my when I got my book got picked up uh, by Flatiron, and um, you know, I was a little older, a little more mature, and I remember walking through Manhattan, and uh, just walking. We were walking on Forty Second Street, you know, and uh, I remember telling my partner i turned to her and i was like you know this feels this isn't serpico new york right you know of course yeah. new york had changed by then and, but it still feels like a character within itself and i wonder you know al pacino being a native new yorker uh or born in new york uh i wonder if there's a certain a clarity that he brought to the role of serpico because you know he I grew agree. up during this time period. So. Yeah. You know, I, and I, I wonder, you know, would we be still talking about Serpico if it had been, you know, if, 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 if it had been, um, Robert Redford, know, somebody of contemporary that Robert Redford, if it had been yeah. Robert Redford playing Serpico, mm -hmm. you know, would we still be talking about it? Because there's a certain, there's a certain, uh, a sense of, of, uh, compatibility, I guess, that yep. a native New Yorker has to a role like Serpico. Um, yeah, you know, it, feels it always feels fun. real. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and 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 I think you know Pacino. I thought he did something interesting in Serpico that was different from uh, Dog Day Afternoon and Dog, different from uh, The Godfather. Is he wasn't afraid to show uh, Frank's fear? You know, mm -hmm. Frank isn't. Fearless, oh yeah, you know? yep, yeah. You know? He isn't. He sunny. wasn't. He isn't all bravado. Yeah. And also at that time, I thought that was an interesting choice. You know, because you know we moved through film history from the uh you know the john waynes of the world you had mentioned this earlier you move from the john waynes and the kirk douglases and the gary coopers to the montgomery cliffs and the james mm -hmm. deans and the early brandos into the 70s where guys like de niro guys like harvey Keitel, who i don't think gets you know poor harvey Keitel, so much overshadowed by you know de niro pacino yeah. but just as good wonderful just actor good. yeah but, but guy guys who are you know are guys guys who are questioning masculinity, who are not afraid to not be tough, who are not afraid to show vulnerability. And I mm -hmm. thought Pacino made such a choice of, you know, once, again, I'm going to go back to the scene. There's a scene toward the end of the movie where he realizes he's not going to have backup in this drug bus, you know? I know. And it's all of his face. It's all yeah. written on his face in a way that I don't think he, I, I, it's, it, I don't think he tapped into that in some later roles. Mm -hmm. And again, this also ties into him being a native New Yorker. He yes. knows that section of the Bronx. He knows how dangerous it was yeah. in 70 or 60. Yep. Yeah, and so he, he brings all yeah. of that 
And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, oh, no, I was just going to say as a kid, he grew up around there. He wasn't allowed outside his house until he was in um, like school. I think it was six or so. Mm-hmm. Um, he had to learn how to fight because he didn't have an older mm-hmm. sibling. He didn't have a father around. He talks about that. Yeah. So he knows it instinctively. And it reminds me of something I forgot to say about the Godfather, but I'm glad you brought it up because you raised a good point about having it in your blood is he finally admitted in um, the actor studio episode with James Lipton. I still love that show. I rewatched it because I happen to have the Patino one. Uh, he's like, where, where are you guys from? And he said, Oh, my father, my grandfather's, I think it was my grandfather's from Sicily. And he said, where? And he said, you know, I kept it a secret for all these years, but I'll tell you it, he's from Corleone. Sicily. <laughs> and it's like, uh, so that was absolutely perfect. He played it Corleone from Corleone, Sicily. Yes. And you got this uh, here in Serpico, exactly what you're saying. A New Yorker who knows these streets knew how dangerous it was. It would be different if, I mean, Redford is a great actor, but you're going to get a different energy there. Absolutely. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think one thing, one last thing I'll say about Serpico is that Pacino is the anchor for the story, but it's such a it's such a bitter love letter to New York. It you is. know, it's such a bitter love letter to a specific time in New York. And Lumet, the way he frames shots, I always remember watching it, and and, you, and this is just me. And I may be wrong about this. I always felt like he framed shots. You know, Al's a, a shorter guy. He's a shorter yes. person. Yeah, he always framed. All but, but it, it's not a detriment because Lamette frames a lot of shots of Serpico. He feels small in the yeah. in the shot, and yeah. I mean that in a good way. He, mm-hmm. You know, he's using a visual medium to show that this is one man, this is one person against, against this, you know, against this this titan that is the New York Police Department, that is New York City, that is the heart. You know, there's people in the movie that make the point that you know. Corruption is just a, as American as apple pie. New York City is the most American city in the world. And Serpico is the one person that says, no, no, yeah. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. You know, and for all of the people that watch Serpico, I think take it as this very cynical, you know, 1970s hard edge uh, crime drama. It's incredibly optimistic. It yeah, really is. It is. It has an incredibly optimistic heart, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, Frank, you know, he goes to Switzerland at the end of the movie. And, and but I, I always got the feeling that he doesn't regret what he did. And then reading the no. book, you realize he doesn't regret what he did. And no. so it's it's amazing that Pacino is able, Pacino and Lamette are able to bring that to the forefront. That despite all this corruption, all this evil, this murder, this terror, this horrible uh, situation that we find ourselves in, you know, Serpico loves New York City. Lamette mm-hmm. loves New York City. Al loves New York City. And because they love it, they wanted to be the best version that it can be. And I think that's what makes Serpico a classic. Yeah, it's raising questions about uh, the institutions. This was the Watergate era. Um, But Serpico, Mm -hmm. of course, based on a true story. But yeah, it does make you think like one person can say, hey, the system shouldn't work like this and um, does something about it, almost loses his life in the process. It's kind of the flip side of a very weird movie, uh, And Justice for All, which closed out the 70s. I watched it for the first time yesterday. I'd seen clips of it. Uh, Norman Jewison's from 1979. Pacino says they were kind of going for that um, George C. Scott movie, The Hospital, 
which was a satire mm-hmm. of the medical establishment in the 70s. Very good film. Um, but this one is not so much. It's kind of all over the place. <laughs> Uh, there is like a big speech that Pacino gives at the end. He, You're out of order. You're out of order. Yeah, the system is out of order. America's out of order. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, basically. Um, and you, you know, you're the winner and you're the winner and show me the money. It's basically that kind of thing, but for 1979. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, it's like a, a bigger outburst everything that um, Serpico wants to keep inside, like I can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that one is a more darkly cynical look at uh, law and order, police, courts, the whole thing. But yeah, there is an optimism, um, kind of a wary optimism yeah. and a fear. A weary, a, wary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we oh. don't have to do this. We can be better than mm-hmm. this um, in Serpico. You don't know how long it lasted. Of course, this is the NYPD but it's yeah it makes you think for sure and justice for all i've i've watched i've only seen it a couple times and um i just love it to me is the beginning of screaming al pacino i'm just gonna yell (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know uh, but it's a movie it's a movie that i think is reach way exceeds its grasp i think you know, Norm Jewison is a fantastic filmmaker, oh, but I yes. think he paints in broad in broad strokes in a way yeah. where Lamette is is drawing a it, it, you know he you know Norman Jewison is is Sidney Pollock to uh you know Sidney Lamette's uh, Andrew Wyeth, where mm-hmm. he's painting in very small quiet uh, strokes where Jewison has always been broad strokes you know and, and it works for him you know and everybody yeah. has their own style but. Yeah, um, I uh, I definitely agree with that. I, there, as somebody said, there were choices made. And yeah, I tweeted that yesterday, <laughs> and I made the joke yeah. of like there was you, Oscars. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm like, if there was an award show called The Shouts, this would win everything. But uh, yeah, it is very much a shouty movie. But that is kind of Jewish, and like one of my favorite movies of all time is Moonstruck, and that's very broad and operatic. Um, even of Didn't course, do, in the um, heat of the night is an amazing movie, but there's, you know, some choices made there with the confrontations, but I love that film so much, but yeah, it is did, not. Did Jewison do, um, did he do, uh, did he do network or that was somebody else? Uh, that was network, did he? Lumet, Jewison. I believe. Yeah. Was it Lumet? Oh, okay. Let me yeah, double I get... check. <laughs> uh, I know. I'm like, watch, so. might, I'm like confidently right. saying it and it's a totally different filmmaker. It is Lumet. Yes. But, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But yes, he didn't. He didn't. Night is also interesting. There were there are choices made. I think yeah. uh, Jewison, uh, not to get on, not to go on a tangent about Jewison, but I think he is someone. Again, like I said, very broad strokes, but yeah. he hits them. He hits those strokes, but he's, he knows them. He's yeah. not a you know where Lumet. It, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, like you know, to transition a segue over to uh, you know Dog Day Afternoon again. Lumet using the finite. I love movies that take place in one setting. Me too. Really, yep. I love books that do that, and I love movies that do that. And 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 just you know, I'll I'll let you introduce. But Dog Day Afternoon is it, for the for its time, it is really wild. It is a yeah. wild movie. Oh, <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah, it's classical framing, economic storytelling. The one setting is perfect. Well, I mean, predominantly one setting. Well, when Al Pacino was asked by Lawrence Grobel for the five films that would best represent his career, he chose Serpico and The Godfather 1 and 2 
over our next film, which I think mm. is not only his best with Sidney Lumet, but also one of his best and one of the greatest films of the 1970s, Dog Day Afternoon from 1975, which Pacino credits most of the film's success, though, not so much to him as the universal idea of fame for the sake of fame, a very loose adaptation of the Life magazine article, The Boys in the Bank, which chronicled the 1972 <laughs> robbery and hostage situation of the Chase Manhattan bank robbery conducted by John Wojewicz and Salvatore Naturell in Brooklyn. The film, written by Frank Pearson, shows Pacino as Sonny Wurtzik, a Vietnam vet who robs the bank on August 22nd with two friends, one who immediately backs out and the other <laughs> is the dim-witted but more unstable Sal, played by the great John Cazal, waiting a full hour to reveal that the reason that Sonny wanted to rob the bank was to pay for his gay spouse's sex change operation. By that point, Lumet and Pacino have completely both endeared and made us worry about Sonny, and it is a brilliant decision to completely put the film's interest in humanity and Lumet's own fascination with empathy, sociology, and getting to the heart of it that works really well. Pacino feels like the movie tapped right into the questions that will be raised by reality television and the idea that anyone, including the pizza delivery man bringing in the food, can be a star. Speaking in 1979, Al Pacino said that the film, quote, hit right where we're at, the kind of energy wrapped up in the media and with imagery and fantasy and film. We don't know enough about media yet. We don't know its effect on us. It's new, but it's got to do something to us. I think it's an eerily prescient thought that might explain why this film might work even better today. And hey, the scenes where he's <laughs> shouting back at a cop wanting to kill him so bad he can taste it right before he launches into a battle cry of Attica certainly hits differently today. But a lot of its effectiveness comes right from the performances of John Cazal, Charles Durning is wonderful, Chris Sarandon, and especially Al Pacino, who Harold Becker described as, quote, more than a great actor, he's the human condition walking around. And I think that applies 100% to this multi-Oscar-nominated film. So what is your take on Dog Day Afternoon? I did not see Dog Day Afternoon until I was in my 30s. I, it was one of those okay. ones I'd heard about all my life. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I was like, oh, man, Dog Day Afternoon, I'll have to check it out. And I heard, you know, bits and pieces about it. Oh, it was, you know, uh, it's, you know, Al Pacino and, and it's this bank robbery and it was a sex change operation that somebody mm -hmm. wants. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. And I, I, when I finally sat down and watched it, it, it was incredibly prescient as to our yeah. obsession with fame. And mm -hmm. it's the ultimate, to me, it's a, it's a great noir movie. You know, it really it, is. Sonny and Sal and Steve and even, you know, Leon, who later on becomes a woman, uh, are, are all kind of losers. You know, they're mm -hmm. all losers. You know, it's 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 definitely um it's definitely uh, emblematic of Dennis Lehane's great definition of noir that in great you know in, in great Greek tragedies people fall from Mount Olympus and in noir people fall from the curb. You know, <laughs> into the street. Oh, that's a perfect description. And, and, oh my God. Yeah, and, and uh, and I think it, it's such. It, it's such a powerful mediation on desperation, on 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 desire, 
on mm -hmm. one, but also it's it's a really kind of harsh look at real people, you know, yeah. Sonny and Sal and, you know, the aforementioned Stevie, you know, they're not smart. They're not experts no. at this. They're, they're not, they definitely, it, you know, this ain't Neil McCauley and he. And, no, um, not at all. <laughs> and so, and so they, their, their, their lack of skill um, soon takes a backseat to the fact that they realize that, you know, I think Sonny realizes it very early on and, oh, wow, this is a moment. And, and instead of, he still wants to get away. It's still a crime, not crime movie to a certain extent, but he embraces his notoriety. He embraces yeah. this moment. You know, it's the um, it's the top of the world speech in White Heat, but uh, made for the modern age. You know, you know, oh, it's, it's look at me point. here I am. Yeah, yeah, it, it's like look at me here I am. You know, I, I I often wonder, and I've watched it a bunch of times since. I often wonder if Sonny really is. Does Sonny really think they're going to get away? You know, I, I you know, I, I often think, or is he just going through the motions that he realized we're not going to get away with this? You know, that. Yeah, you know, that, I think you know, it's the latter. I think he's just going through the motions. Yeah, because the that, beginning of the film, actually, Pacino reshot or, or asked to the beginning when he first was shooting it. He came into the bank wearing glasses and a disguise. And then he thought about it. He's like, this guy almost wants to get caught. I can't go into the mm -hmm. bank with the disguise. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly what he was doing. Um, he's talked about what he looks for in a director. And he said somebody who actually directs. And he said Lumet is really good at saying, well, you go here, you go there. And he said, just by telling me where my character is going um, instead of what he's thinking, then all of a sudden I'm allowed to become that character and Lumet was also giving him great notes like, well, it's this guy's day in the sun. And whatever switch got turned on in Pacino's brain when he was making this was so um, extreme that when they actually had to go back and do reshoots later, he said, I couldn't get the character back. It's like he was there mm -hmm. and he flew out of my head completely as soon as we were done shooting it the first time. So when we did reshoots, like I couldn't get it back. And um, wow. I think, yeah, he just really becomes this guy. You buy it. It's claustrophobic, uh, especially the scenes mm -hmm. in the bank. You feel that heat. I mean, they're all sweating profusely. He's wearing like this polyester shirt, which is the most uncomfortable <laughs> thing. I'm in Phoenix. I don't know why this movie I always watch usually in the summertime when it's hotter than hell here and you really feel it. It's kind of like you watch <laughs> Spike Lee's do the right thing and it's so hot. Yeah. Totally feeling it. And so watching it and thinking, boy, why did he wear a polyester shirt or why not take off the shirt uh, and just wear his uh, undershirt around? But yeah, you just really feel it. Then when he's outside, they kind of go for these bigger wide shots, like his hero shots inside. Mm -hmm. He's, he's small. He's going to get trapped. And outside he's, yep. A bigger than life. Look at me. Top of the world. Exactly what you were saying. And then on just a plot driven point, he makes such bad decisions. I know. Like when they set the trash can on fire, you know, it's just hilarious. Like it's sadly. Hilarious. I love that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I love that when, uh, when the, when he, I love, uh, you know, Kazil, uh, he improvised the Wyoming, uh, line. Where, yes. asked, where did you want to go? Where in the world? He's like, Wyoming. And it's like, oh my it's not God. a country. You poor <laughs> dumb guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I, I thought it is such a noir film. And I, I think, you know, you know, in this in this day and age, this modern time, it is a brave film. You know, they never treat Sonny's sexuality as a joke. 
Not at you all. Know, it's not a joke. No, you see uh, the cops and, and laughing at his lover and you feel like horrible. Yeah. 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 They laugh at it, but Lumet never takes it as a joke. No, you know, the director never treats Durning. it as a joke. Yep. And, no, and when, and when Chris Sarandon, you know, walks up on the scene and, you know, and that, I think maybe one of his first roles, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's for that time, again, we always talk about making excuses for movies, you know? Yeah. Oh, well, it was a movie of its time. They made mm-hmm. choices. You know, to me, Dog Day Afternoon is one of those movies that kicks that excuse out of the water. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. there was a movie made at a certain time, and they never play, uh, you know, that, that they never play Sonny for a joke because he's gay or because he has no. a, he's bi or however he identifies. You know, he, you know, and we find out later that he has a wife and kids. And so, he's, yeah. you know, we see, again, He's a loser. He's, you know, he, he's a he's a character that is not very skilled, but he's also a tragic character. You know, very what, much. I was looking at that movie like, what what must it have felt like for that character in 1975 to be, you know, either bi or gay? I don't know how he identifies. Yeah, and uh, you know, in that time period in in New York, you know, and and not being able to be honest, not being able to, this is a right around the time of Stonewall and all that. And so, you know, I thought again, Lumet and and Pacino and everybody involved in the film made very conscientious, brave choices uh, yeah. in, in the way they presented it, the way they uh, allowed that story to unfold. Um, but, you know, going back to Al Pacino and his performance, you know, again, you talked about the polyester suit. I, I'd love to find out whether he had any input in that because, again, just another bad choice that Sonny makes to wear a polyester mm-hmm. suit on the hottest day of the damn year. Um, and, you know, I, I thought, you know, like you said about Charles Durney, who was great in this movie, um, oh, the relationship phenomenal. between him and, and Sonny. And, and, you know, you get this feeling from Charles Durning and Sonny that they really don't want to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, you, no, you see that play, you see that paid lip service in a lot of bank robbery movies or a lot of, you know, nobody has to get hurt here. But you feel like Charles Durning, he has such a, a world weariness of his mm-hmm. characters. Like, you know, and you, I could just hear it in my head, you know, it's hot. I'm tired. Please don't kill anyone. Let's just end yeah. this. You're not going to get away. But, you know, and it's funny, uh, going back to the plot for a minute and, and how it affects the performance. Again, he wears a polyester suit. They get there and they find they're, on, they're, they're, on, they're, they're there on cash pickup day. So it's only like $1,100 in the whole bank. You know, and yes. everything that could go wrong for them goes wrong. Stevie running away at the last minute. You know, and, oh and, and like you said, it takes, that's hilarious. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, like I don't want to do this. <laughs> I <Yeah. know. laughs> or the I, bank no, robbery no, no. is already happening. I love that line. Like it's already happening. <laughs> yeah. We already started. Oh, you can't back out now. Yeah. <laughs> and, the squirrel, says, nope, and he has to come back twice. Like, yeah. I want to take the car. And like we need the car. Oh my God. It's yeah, it's really good. You brought up there's a, so much of dog day afternoon. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say, too, you made a really good point. Stonewall was, you know, 69 and this was 74. So it was in the back of their mind. Um, You know, you can today, of course, people say, well, why didn't they cast like an actual trans person? And I guess somebody auditioned and wasn't right for it. So they went with Chris. So you can always pick apart little things. But I Mm -hmm. think for the most part, this movie is phenomenal. It treats everybody with empathy and it does show um 
you know, the crowd whistling as he's patting down the guy, I think after it gets revealed um, that he does have, Mm -hmm. that he is bisexual, he does have a a gay spouse or a gay lover, Um, you know, and you see some of the cops like smirking, and then you see the look that Durning gives them, just, you know, the Mm -hmm. lack of respect. And one thing I always admired about the movie was it never showed you Durning realizing that he was bisexual and like making a judgment. It's just like, this is a man who's um, sees him as another person and they, they're both in the middle of something where there's bureaucracy, there's people above them uh, and they just want to get out of it. We also have the whole idea of uh, Sonny was a Vietnam vet. Um, so there's questions about that. Sal was, we're thinking also in Vietnam, um, even though I, I never really quite figured out the line where he says he'd never been on a plane before. I'm like, how the hell did he get over? Maybe he went, uh, <laughs> maybe he went by ship. Like, I don't know, yeah. but um, we're not fully sure about that, but there's not, there's a lot of questions around Sal, but yeah, there's a lot yeah. of um, humanity, empathy. I think it was also good that they didn't stick super closely to the facts when it came to Sonny. Like, I guess there had been a couple years space between his wife and then um, his second spouse. Um, and this, they, they have it overlap. And so you see Sonny interact with uh, his wife and talk about their kids and this heartbreaking mm-hmm. scene where he's on the phone with her and then Chris Sarandon's character and um, writing letters. I mean, it's all very moving, very sad. Like it starts out, with this larger than life, almost you can see it as a companion piece to Lumet's network. And then the second half mm-hmm. of the movie is just a tragedy uh, all around. Yeah. It's a train wreck. Yeah. yeah. And I think it, it, it I was talking about this. Uh, I did, uh, I did an online workshop. Uh, I led on a workshop oh, yeah, the recently. Other day about violence and how yeah. violence, yeah. And how violence informs characters and, you know, violence reveals what your character's limitations are, you know, yeah. uh, because, Everybody can pick up a knife or a gun, but not everybody can use it. And yep. and, and so violence as a, as a theme in 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 either screenwriting or in in, in prose writing uh, is is incredibly illuminative of your character. And I always felt like with Sonny, you know, Sal, it's weird. They do this really great dichotomy with Sal, where he's almost lovable because he's sort of dumb, he's yeah. sort of dim with it. But but Sal is willing. To rather through his oh yeah, he's willing. He's willing to kill people. He's Mm -hmm. willing to do it. And Sonny really isn't. And I thought they use violence to great effect to show the difference between Sonny and Sal. Where Mm -hmm. Sonny is, you know, whether you want to say Sonny is is more well adjusted than Sal or not, he. I I think that's irrelevant. I just feel like Sonny's character. He wanted to rob a bank and nobody get hurt, which is you know naive. Yeah, but it's not that. It's not that Sal is this hardened criminal. It's just whatever Sal's been through in his life, this is the way he answers problems. Oh, we're in his bank. We got to get out. I'll kill somebody. I will threaten mm-hmm. to shoot someone. This is what yeah. I do. This is how I handle things. And um, I thought that was great. But I, I used the term uh, in, this, in this workshop the other day of what I like to call the dramatic uh, cone. You know, like think of a ice cream cone. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens in the beginning of the story is the top of the ice cream cone. It's the, it's the, yeah. it's the scoops of ice cream. Okay. And, then, and then as the action takes, as you eat the ice cream, you get further down and down and down and down till you finally got just this little nub of the cone. 
And I think the action in your stories, I've always said, has to do that. It has to come down to this finite point, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and with Dog Day Afternoon, as he, you know, Lumet does that in such a great way because it's all about, you know, you know, all this other stuff that's going on with Sonny. You know, he has this this lover who wants to have a sex change operation. He has his friend Steve and Sal trying to help him. He has this, you know, relationship with his wife. He's trapped. You know, he has this friendship that he almost develops with Durning's character. But everything comes down to those final moments in the car, you know, on the tarmac. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it all comes down to that. You know, again, spoiler alert, you know, Sal gets shot. Sonny gets arrested. Sal sees, I mean, uh, Sonny sees Sal's body getting picked up. Everything that he tried to do, and it comes down to this, nothing matters. Nothing he did worked. Nothing he did mattered. And that is such a dark, noir ending to that film. And Pacino, again, does great facial, body, whatever you want to call it, eye acting, where it's just, you see it all on his face. You know, it's very apparent that, excuse me, that, that that character realizes Nothing I did worked. There's nothing I, I have not succeeded at anything I've tried to do. And he has to accept that. He has to own that. And Pacino does such a great job. You know, the earlier histrionics are just that. They're histrionics. That's the way Sonny deals with the world. Those are his defense mechanisms, you know, because he doesn't want to deal with it. And I, I think it goes back to here's a character who's dealing with his sexual. Duality yeah. in 1975. Here's a character who's dealing with, you know, the his what, whatever possible PTSD he has, and so his over the top activities on the one hand are him embracing the moment, his moment in the sun, but also I think they're defense mechanisms for a really, really, really troubled person. And Pacino, again, I hate to sound, uh, you know, I hate to sound uh, uh, naive, but he really could do no wrong in the 70s. You know, he mm-hmm. really, as far as his performances, he was pitch perfect with everything. And he ne- never a false note again. You know, I keep using that metaphor, but it's so true. Uh, it's so ac- accurate with his performances in the 70s where he never makes a wrong decision with uh, uh, with, with Sonny. And again, that goes to Lamette's great direction, but it's something in, in him. He And it's interesting that he said he couldn't get that character back. Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating because... I do think for some, like in some instances, there are actors who, you know, they plug in, they, they become that character. They go to another level and it's yeah, hard they channel to something. Hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like a vibe. And, you know, whether you, mm-hmm, whether you want to go metaphysical and say, it's a, it, you know, it's a muse, it's a, it's a it, lightning it's, in it's, a bottle, a spiritual yep. thing, whether you want to go. Yeah. Or whether you want to go, you know, psychologically that they go to a certain place in their minds that it's hard to go to again. Um, you know, I think it's amazing because you can see it, the energy that he exudes as Sonny, the manicness. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can imagine that it has to be hard to replicate that. I've done very little acting. I was a drama kid in college and high school. But the energy that it takes to get to those emotional peaks and valleys, um, uh, it must be physically demanding. And I can imagine it was impossible for him to grab that character again. You know, it's just like... um when I'm writing sometimes, when I'm writing a story and I'm really in the zone, I'm really in the moment, it feels like I've, I've raised my hand in the air and, 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 and like, you know, somebody from Olympus has hit me with a lightning bolt. And it's hard <laughs> to get back to that. That's why rewrites, that's why rewriting sucks. That's my, that's my hot take for the day. I hate rewriting. Because oh, it's really? hard to, I prefer to get to that rewriting emotional. to writing, but that's just me. <laughs> uh, oh, no. Everybody, you know, everybody think, everybody works differently. I, yeah. because I'm so, I'm so in the moment when I'm writing the initial draft gotcha. that it's hard to get back to that place. I can do it. And I, 
I think I've become better as a writer because I've become better at being able to do it. I also, when I started writing, I had very, I had, I had very obnoxious uh, artistic uh, ideals. You know, I didn't, I had everything but a beret and a French cigarette when I started oh. writing. It was like, <laughs> like, uh, it's that like, I'm so in the funny. moment of the art. And, yeah. uh, you know, you realize, no, you, you know, that's, that's nice when you're 17 or 18, but if you really want to make a career at it, you have to be able to replicate that emotion, replicate that moment. I think it's different for actors, though, because it's so physical. You know, yeah. it's such a commitment on their part. And nobody, com- and I said it earlier, nobody is as fearless as Al Pacino. Nobody makes, especially Al Pacino, 70 to about 90, nobody made the choices he made, except maybe De Niro. Maybe, you know, and you know, the funny thing is, and I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm uh, being negative toward this actor, but I want to make a comparison real quick. Sure. Early, early Nicolas Cage was very similar to Al Pacino. Yeah, uh, I can see Vampire's that. Kiss, mm-hmm. Raising Arizona, um, especially um, what I consider his best role, uh, Leaving Las Vegas. I could have seen Al Pacino doing oh, that, that role was harrowing. in yeah. or 70. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 uh, as someone who grew up with family members who suffer from alcoholism, um, I could you know Nicolas Cage was doing the Al Pacino thing where he's making fearless choices. And he's mm-hmm. making and he's making a choice and he's sticking with it. A lot of times you can see in an actor's performance they make a choice and they waver in their confidence, and so the performance suffers. Now Nicolas Cage, you know, became a parody of himself. I think he's sort of redeemed that in, in the last few years. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, somebody would say maybe Al Pacino did that in the 90s. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't say that. But yeah, there's those two actors good are work, different because... But, yeah. But there's those also two actors some are different. questions. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. Jack and Jill, that had to be a check. Woo. That had to be... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they had a house payment that was due. Um, but I, would, I wanted to make the point about Nicolas Cage and Al Pacino is that whereas Al Pacino finds that fearlessness and goes right up to the line. Nicolas Cage, I think, especially in his later performances, takes fearlessness and becomes unwieldy. He Mm -hmm. goes up to the line and he jumps, he sails over it in an effort to make the performance bigger than life, where Al Pacino and all your genius actors, like I said, Al Pacino, Denzel, uh, Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, um, mm-hmm. You know, in later years, one of my favorite act, one of my favorite actresses working today is Amy Adams. Um, oh, absolutely! Uh, you know, yeah, Viola Davis. Yep. Um, I think they realize that the it's hard. The, the, it takes more skill to go right up to the line. Mm-hmm. It takes more skill and and discipline to go right up to the line and then pull back. And yeah. um, I to think a lot it. of actors don't realize that. Yeah, and Al Pacino is one of the best at that. He really is. And I think it's inherent. Like I said before, I don't think you can teach that. I think he has no. a rare gift that he sh- that he shares with like those people I've mentioned previously. Um, you know, and uh it is an interesting um thing to see him progress over the course of the 70s. You know, it's for me, it's fascinating to watch an actor in their prime and watch an actor come into their own and 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 settle into their confidence and realize. I'm pretty damn good at this and I know what I'm doing. And then once you get to that point, then you can extrapolate it and become, uh, you know, go to the next level and you can do things, you know, um, you know, uh, cause like, you know, right after dog day afternoon, 
Al Pacino did, uh, well, not right after it, but a couple of years later, he did Cruising, which is not a great movie. I was going to talk but... about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, please. I want to hear your thoughts. Oh, on no. That. First, I was going to say, like, what you were saying with um, Nicolas Cage, that was a really astute um, piece of analysis there. What's interesting is you pointed out uh, Leaving Las Vegas and the movie The Lost Weekend with Ray Milan playing an alcoholic was one of Pacino's earliest big memories of being like five years old. His mom loved taking him to the movies and he would go and he, in the movie, there's a scene where Milan is frantically looking for a bottle of alcohol. And mm-hmm. Al actually did have a bit of an alcohol issue uh, in the sixties and seventies. Um, people had pointed it out. He was stopping. Um, but anyway, as a five-year-old, he would mimic the scene where he's like frantically looking for the bottle and uh, so his mom would tell people like, hey, do the last weekend. And he would act it out. And he said, <laughs> I don't know why people were laughing at me because in my head, I'm like frantically looking for this alcohol I need. Mm-hmm. And they're just seeing a five-year-old. He said I was very into it. But I think what you get with um, Dog Day Afternoon is this is an excruciating point, uh, portrait of desperation. And that's mm-hmm. um, they're very interested in the psychology, the claustrophobia, mm-hmm. and you feel it. And the psychology and humanity of these characters is front and center. But then you contrast that with something like Cruising, which was made um, years later. And while it was pulled from the headlines a little bit about some um, gay killings, um, it was grittier. It was trying for a few things. Uh, Friedkin has put some of the blame on Pacino. He thought maybe it should have been Richard Gere. The film was heavily picketed at the time, like, you know, uh, by the gay liberation people. And Pacino um, had a lot of um, qualms about that. He wondered, what are we doing here? And why are they picketing a movie that they haven't even seen? And that's not, I wouldn't want to do something anti-gay. So he had the right idea, but it's the way it was handled. And I think it's handled very in a pure way in um, Dog Mm -hmm. Day Afternoon. And I think it stems from Pacino's interest in the three reasons he's drawn any of these things in the to begin with the director uh the text and the character and this was another really good match yeah and cruising unfortunately oh, yeah. did not work that well yeah no i i think uh, i you know i, I don't want to i don't want to draw direct parallels between cruising and dog day afternoon but they yeah. do both talk about lgbtq issues mm-hmm. uh they do both talk about lgbtq issues i read an article about cruising that uh it was so a lot of the uh, scenes that took place in the, uh, um, you know, the 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 gay district that was called back then was called the Meatpacking District. Uh, a lot of the scenes were filmed at actual gay clubs, that there were gay yep. people from the gay community that were a part of the film. I think again, you go back to the difference between two directors. I don't mm-hmm. think it's Al's fault that Cruising no. didn't succeed. To me, it's really freaking. I think yep. it's freaking, and I think freaking didn't know what kind of movie he was making, no, and he never he really came didn't. to a realization. Mm-hmm. Is it a is it a is it a thriller? Is it a social commentary? Is it you know is it is it, it what is what are we doing? And I think if your actor has to ask himself that, then you're not doing a good job as a director. That's just my opinion. I've yeah. seen the movie once, uh, and it um, you know it is you can see what they were kind of going for, but nobody yeah. made a decision as to what it was going to be, and you know, all. and so it it doesn't it doesn't work. Whereas Dog Day Afternoon, Lumet was very uh, aware, you know, the LGBTQ issues in, in, in Dog Day Afternoon are adding to the story. They're not the story, you yep. know? 
it's a story about a people character first. who happens to be, yeah, people first, not, you know, and I think that goes back to making characters, not caricatures. In yeah. cruising, 100%. I feel like it's very much their caricatures, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it's also, here's the funny thing, I think cruising is a straight man's interpretation of what it's like to be a part of the gay community. Because yeah, you always get this feeling a in bit of gay panic in there. I mean, yes. it's all about gay panic a little bit. There's artistry, yeah, but it's all over mm-hmm. the place. Yeah. I always felt like freaking was like looking at it like, oh man, Al Pacino's character, he might be gay. He might be gay. He might like this. He might be getting turned on. And it's like, you know, that's not how any of that works. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I have yeah. family members who are gay and it's, that's not, you know, <laughs> that's not how that works. And so Freakin', I think, didn't understand that. Whereas Lamette, he doesn't focus on the sexuality. He focuses on the character. And the sexuality is a part of the character. And so he gives it, he gives it, he gives it respect at a time Mm -hmm. when people weren't really giving it respect. And I think, you know, to go back to Al, because that's what we're talking about. I think Al Pacino is, you know, you would see another actor in that role of that time period. I don't know if, again, if we'd still be talking about it. because. Al does something with that role where it's like you said, it's about desperation. It's about celebrity. It's about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, wrong choices. It's about uh, people lost in, 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 in despair. Uh, yeah. But also he does a thing where he, he never, I felt like he never looked down on Sonny as an actor. Not at all. Mm-hmm. You know, he never looks down on Sonny. He never uh, uh, disrespects Sonny as an actor. And mm-hmm. I think that is, again, something that is inherent in him as an actor that not everybody yeah. has. You know, um, I watched a movie a while ago. Um, uh, gosh, it, it came out a few years ago. It was Pain and Gain with Mark Wahlberg oh, yes. and Anthony and Mackie and uh, Dwayne. Dwayne Johnson, yep. Rock. And th- I didn't like that movie Mm-mm. because I felt like. I felt like, especially Mark Wahlberg, but to a lesser extent, you know, Dwayne Johnson and Anthony Mackie, although I feel like Mark, I felt like Wahlberg was the more egregious of the three. These characters are bad characters. They're, they're, if anybody hasn't seen oh, the yeah. it's, it's it's about murder and, and it's mm-hmm. a very dark, you know, movie, um, which was marketed as a comedy, which I'll never understand. No. But, um, but to me, Wahlberg doesn't understand his character. And no. He doesn't respect you no, don't have very to like misanthropic, it. even about its yeah. own people. Like, yeah, which right. I get, but it's hard to know why they're making it, kind of. Right. And you know, he the, and, and I don't think Wahlberg as an actor understood what no. this character, who this character was. He's an evil person, he's a bad person. And he tried because at the beginning of the story, the movie, he has this whole speech where, like, I believe in fitness. I believe yes. in fitness. but Wahlberg isn't the character to what that's really saying to me is that's that character's mantra. That's that character's mm-hmm. understanding. That that's who he is. That's all he has. And he never, I, I don't have to like that character. I don't really have to sympathize with that character, but I need to understand where he's coming from and respect him. And Wahlberg doesn't. And because he doesn't, it makes the whole movie uncomfortable. It makes the whole movie just, I like Absolutely. dark stuff. I write dark. You know, oh yeah. Anybody raise, 100%. anybody raise away to you, but I don't, like dark stuff when I don't understand where the darkness is coming from. You and I never link. understand it mm-hmm. in 
when you yeah. take that, and I'm not, these are totally different movies, so just, I'm sorry, I'm rambling again. The ramblings of a madman. Um, no. But you look at a movie like Insomnia, which is a part of, <laughs> Insomnia, Pacino, which is a part yes. of Pacino's <laughs> 90s. Yeah, you look oh, at a movie like Insomnia, early zeros. where, yep. you know, yeah, early zeros, where we kind of think Pacino might have killed his partner on purpose. Yeah. And <laughs> there's a darkness in that character but because Pacino is Al Pacino, one of the greatest living actors that we have, I understand the darkness. Yes. I understand the weariness. I understand where that, that character is coming yeah, from. Yeah, you don't have you know, to love Not him, only that he can't sleep at night. you got to get him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the idea that he can't sleep because he's in the, uh, up in the north, you know, in, in, in near mm-hmm. the North Pole or, you know, near the Antarctica. And, it, you know, it's, it's light all the time. That's really not why he can't sleep. He can't no. sleep because of what happened to his partner. His own. And, and it's like Al Pacino, yeah. And his he own darkness. makes you understand that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not trying to rag on, on Mark Wahlberg, but it, it is such, to me as a fan of film, it's such a stark contrast when, mm-hmm. a, when the actor understands that. When the actor understands, here's where my character is, here's where the darkness comes from, here's how this, this character deals with it. And Pacino, you know, again, I, you know, Jack and Jill aside, Pacino does that and understands that in a way that very few actors do. And I, I think that's really what makes him great is his fearlessness, but also his incredibly innate ability to understand where his characters come from. Not so yeah. much their motivations, but who are they? What made them this way? What are the influences that created them? Why are they this way when we meet them in, that, in this moment in their life? And, you know, he does it in Dog Day, he does it in Serpico, he does it in The Godfather, he does it in a lot of different movies. Um, and he's one of my favorite actors. He's one of these actors I can watch in anything, um, all day, every day. Um, I think he's made some interesting choices later in his career. Sure. But I'm never bored watching Al Pacino, you know? I'm never no. bored watching. I can't say that about a lot of actors. No, and what you were saying with characters, you hope it's on the page when you get the script, but even if it isn't, mm-hmm. um, you know, he finds an innate humanity of all these people. Uh, whenever he's asked, you know, which one of the characters is most like you or least like you, he doesn't really like to answer that. He says all of his characters are him or he, he found parts of himself that he put into these people. And even if like he doesn't maybe understand them 100%, there's something there. There's a, a commonality or of the human experience. And I think that's why he is um, the extraordinary actor he is. But I knew we would have a lot to talk about with uh, just these three films. And of course, Al Pacino's entire career. And man, did we ever. This was wonderful. But when it comes to Pacino in this era, uh, do you have any other films you think are must-sees that you want to tell people that they should seek out? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny because I am a man. I, am, I just turned 48. And um, <laughs> uh-huh. it's interesting that uh, I grew up, you know, I grew up as a kid the 90s and 80s and yeah i you know i watched a lot of al pacino movies growing up my dad is is was always has been a huge al pacino fan uh my mom was my late mother was as well so i have a pacino and de niro and and dustin hoffman are (laughs) you know they were they were seminal actors in my childhood in addition to you know uh uh, sydney portier 
Denzel Washington. Yeah, um, you know, absolutely. Folks like that, Lawrence Fishburne. And so, um, you know, if, if I had to recommend a movie from this period that maybe a lot of people haven't seen, um, that I, I would say, you know, everybody knows uh, Scarface. Yeah. I have a, <laughs> this isn't really, this. it's really not in the 70s, but I have a, <laughs> I have a weird soft spot for author author. I a lot of it's not author a author. Oh, well, but yes. <laughs> Was that the Neil Simon? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah yeah. It's a uh, author author. It's a 1982 American autobiograph- autobiographical comedy drama film directed by author Hillier, written by Israel Horowitz, uh, and it stars Albertino and Diane Cannon and Tuesday Wells. And it follows a Broadway theater playwright striving. And solving the problem with his family while trying to get his new play into production. There's something so likable. But it's something so warm and likable and fun about author author. Again, I'm a I, I don't know what you call me. I love New York. I guess I'm a New York file, I guess. Um, but uh, you know, there's something just incredibly heartwarming about this story. And as a kid who wanted to be a writer, um, it has a soft spot in my heart. Um, you know. Diane Cannon, as also as a kid, Diane Cannon is gorgeous in this movie. My God. Oh, yes, she is. Yep. (laughs) She's so pretty. Um, And I got to see, again, Tuesday Wells, who I think he was dating. Tuesday Wells, yeah, is in it as well. And it's just, you know, we all know the Pacino, these intense, hardcore performances of men in crisis, men uh, at the crossroads in their lives. And this is Al Pacino, you know, you know, eating up on the gas a little bit and just <laughs> I'm a father. He's a single dad. I'm a Aww. playwright. I'm trying to get his play off the ground. And it, it, it's also a beautiful portrait of the artsy side of New York, which is the side that I love, uh, the side that I'm drawn to as much as I am to the gritty, dark uh, corners of the city. I love this, you know, the idea of Broadway as a job and mm-hmm. Broadway as, you know, this is my job. This is what I do. And um and it has very great comical moments. There's a moment where Albacino has an, has Diane Keaton, not Diane Keaton, excuse me, Diane Cannon has spent the night, and his kids are responsible for doing the laundry. And so oh. <laughs> he's a scene in the movie where the kid comes in, he's like, "Turn over," and so Albacino turns over on his stomach, uh, you know, and and he pulls the sheets off, and Diane Cannon doesn't know this, and so she's there all natural. Oh no, <laughs> she's mortified. The kids mortified. It's a funny scene, um, but it just, it's just a just such a sweet, heartwarming movie. Um, it was right in the middle of his, you know, golden age. I don't think it was a huge hit uh, commercially or uh, or uh, critically, but for me, it, it's one of my favorite Al Pacino performances because it's just Al Pacino as a guy who's trying to write, who's trying to find love, who's trying to do right by his kids. Um, it's a little schmaltzy, but uh, you could do worse than uh, on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, clicking on author author I really love it ah gotcha yeah I must have had that one totally confused with another one from that era uh, I wonder if it had Dustin Hoffman it was it was like a Neil Simon from that same period but I'm gonna have to see this because um looking it up I am not 100% sure that I have so now I want to check out author author well this was so wonderful. it wasn't it wasn't a great hit I, okay. I'm looking at some of the reviews People were oh, mean that's to okay. it. I, but I personally liked it because I like New York City and I like Al Pacino and it's pretty cool. Absolutely. But anyway, 
can't lose. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much, Sean. I know I took up most of your afternoon, but this was really wonderful. And I so appreciate it. It's always great to talk to you about movies and, and life and writing. So this was a real treat. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Again, I apologize for my madcap ramblings when it comes to movies. I'm, I, I promised myself oh, no. I would have notes and then I didn't, I, then I didn't use the notes at all. So, you know, That's for okay. me, this but thank you for having me. I, lo- I love, love, love talking to you about movies. I, I, I don't, I don't think there's another person that I know personally who is, is insightful and as articulate about film as an art medium as you. So it's always a pleasure to speak with oh, you. Oh, that's so, so kind of you to say. Thank you, Sean. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. <laughs>